You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back Lars Sandbeck. Lars teaches ministerial students in the Church of Denmark, which is Lutheran in background. He is an associate professor in theology with a PhD from the University of Copenhagen. He's been teaching theology in an interesting way, which proceeds from the end rather than from the beginning. And I wanted him to tell us more about this. And so I'm happy to have Lars Sandbeck back with us on the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here again. Well, Lars, I have really enjoyed the interviews uh, that that we've done together. And one of the things that's been curious about this for me is when, when I started thinking about grace, I, I began to realize that in over the history of the Christian tradition, there have been those that have affirmed that grace alone saves. And there have been those that have affirmed that grace goes to all. And there have been those who have affirmed that not all will be saved. And what I noticed about that is that it creates a logical problem. And so you have to you have to give up one of those beliefs if you want to be logically consistent. But then what I discovered, partially through my conversations with you, is that Lutheranism actually embraces all three of these views. And you, you might say holds them in somewhat of a creative tension. And that historically has tried to maintain that tension, even though there is a logical inconsistency that's involved there. And I think what you're making a space for is a way for uh, Lutherans to be able to um, potentially stay within the Lutheran church, within the Lutheran confession, but uh, in some ways maybe resolve that um, contradiction in favor of, of, of a of being able to affirm, yes, that grace alone does save, that salvation is a work of grace, and that God predestines no one to hell and actually does desire the salvation of all. So is that a fair uh, summary of the situation from your point of view? Yes, it is. Uh, although I have to say that when you call it a creative tension, it might be somewhat of an euphemism. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to be nice. Yeah, I was trying I, uh, to be nice, Lars. I could hear that, but but I'm not that nice. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I would rather say that there's an eternal contradiction or inconsistency in Lutheranism, uh, not in Luther's theology uh, as such, but in later Lutheran tradition. Uh, there's, I think that uh, what has changed is that Luther didn't believe that grace goes to all. He was, uh, he believed in a limited atonement and uh, that only the elect was to benefit from the death of Christ. But later, later Lutherans affirms that, uh, yes, uh, we are saved by grace alone and we are saved, uh, all uh, will receive this grace. That God, no, that God wants all to be saved. God wants mm-hmm. all to receive this grace, but somehow <laughs> not all will do that. And that remains a paradox or some, something that doesn't add up. 
And I think that the only consistent uh, Lutheran theology will have to change the the conclusion, have to think that if grace saves alone and if God really wants to save all, then nothing can prohibit God in achieving that desired end. Uh, so what have to be changed? I think uh, there are elements in the Lutheran tradition that points very easily in the direction of universal salvation. But for some reason, the tradition is still embedded in the belief in only a limited salvation. So they try to affirm all three statements one at once, and it ends up be, uh, presenting the Lutheran interpretation of Christianity as, as extremely inconsistent. Uh, and then some of my colleagues who are more Lutheran than I am uh, will try to defend it by saying that uh, God is transcendent and uh, it's a mystery and we cannot trust our intellectual faculties too much because of uh, sinful uh, human sinfulness and so on. They try to down downplay uh, the the contradictions and paradoxes by referring to the mystery. But that ends up uh, creating all sorts of difficulties because in the end then we uh, cannot even be sure that we know or understand the, the basic theological words we're using. Uh, but that might be a different topic. But I think much can be... Uh, well, what's funny... Mm, yes, go on. What's funny is that one time I was explaining my my work to somebody and I said, you know, Christianity has affirmed over the over its history has affirmed that grace saves alone, grace goes to all, and all will not be saved. Uh, but you have to give up one of those if you want to be logically consistent. Mm. And the response I got was, not if you're Lutheran. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's uh, it. Might be I. I, I have an aversion uh, against uh, paradox in theology. I, th I think paradoxes are an excuse <laughs> for, for for not being consistent in doing theology. Uh, the only paradox I can accept in theology is that we don't know why and where and how evil gets into the created world. Here I'm willing to accept a certain paradox. Uh, a omnibenevolent God creates this world. He's also omnipotent and he, uh, he's not the author of evil, but why does evil occur in this world? That seems to me to be a mystery. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if only Luther had thought that God wanted all to be saved, then his uh, then of course he would have to embrace some form of universalism, but he was not capable of doing that. Uh, so by putting so much emphasis on that uh, grace, uh, the efficient grace, that the only way to be saved is through efficient grace, and also holding to the belief that not all would be saved in the end that left him with no other op option than to deny that God wants to also be saved. So at least Luther was 
uh, more consistent than later Lutherans. I think he was more uh, Calvinist <laughs> than later Lutheranism turns out to be. Well, one of the things that has in that I found interesting about your teaching approach is something that I've heard from uh, for an interview that I did with uh, Douglas Campbell, New Testament scholar Douglas mm. Campbell. He said that in order to do theology well, we need to learn to think backwards. Yeah. And what he meant by that is that we need to think about what God's ultimate purposes are positively within creation and then reason backwards from that instead of reasoning forwards from the problem of the fall mm. to reason backwards from God's ultimate resolution of all things. And to me, Origen of Alexandria did this. He focused on 1 Corinthians 15, 28, mm. that God would be all in all. Mm. And then he came up with a the first Christian systematic philosophical theology. And there were a lot of moving, you might say when you look at Origen's on first principles, there's a lot of moving parts to that. It's quite speculative in lots mm -hmm. of ways. But if you just look at the big picture, basically what you have is you have this brilliant person doing theology and philosophy from the end that God will be all in all. And then he worked backwards from that to try to understand how everything culminates in that, mm -hmm. given the problem of human sin and evil and suffering. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting to me about what you're doing is in a way you're doing sort of a modern exercise in that mm -hmm. same type of thing, trying to reason from the end. If the end is going to be good for all, then to reason backwards from that. So there's two questions that I think come to mind. First of all, why would any serious theologian think that there is biblical evidence, real strong biblical evidence that we can think that there will be a good ending for all? Mm -hmm. Then if you can find that, how does that affect the rest of your theological enterprise if you begin with the end that God will be all in all and then work backwards from that in the rest of your theology? Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, when I started uh, studying theology, I was very much inspired by Karl Barth and his Christocentric approach to doing theology. That is, uh, if uh, we want mm -hmm. to understand the first things, the, the, about the eternal being of God and the creation of the world and, and so on. And if you want to understand the final things about the general resurrection of the dead and eternal life and the judgment and so on, then we have to approach them from the middle things, that is, from Christology, from uh, God's self-revelation in, in Jesus Christ. But what occurred to me at some point, uh, I can't remember, when and why, but it occurred to me that uh, God's self-revelation in Christ is not just about who God has been from all eternity. The being of God, it's also about that. But first and foremost, the self-revelation of God is the revelation of God's ultimate purpose for everything, for the world and the humanity he has created. It's about the telos, <laughs> the end the uh, God's revelation is eschatological in nature. So what God reveals is his overarching plan for the world and for humanity, his ultimate purpose for, for us all. So, and I think that uh, there are certain, uh, there are several biblical uh, passages that claims to know 
what God's ultimate purpose is. And one of them you mentioned is 1 Corinthians 15, one of Origins and Gregory of Nyssa's favorite passages, but also Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, where it reads, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And this fulfillment is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So here we see that uh, God's ultimate purpose is to bring all things into unity, into harmony, into the right balance, uh, put things as a right again. And, right. And, and I believe that the Greek word there in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 that refers to that is anakephaliososthai, which is mm. is to back again underneath the head, mm. that kef, the kephala, underneath yeah. the head of Christ, so that all things are put back together so that Christ is the head. And I think the way Gregory of Nyssa worked that out is that ultimately that, that, that all of creation would be underneath the headship of Christ and yeah. that the body of Christ ultimately would be all of humanity. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, the per when we want to understand the actions of God, why did God create a world in the first place? Why did he send his son? Why did Jesus die on the cross, etc.? Then we have to interpret that and understand it in light of God's ultimate purpose. Otherwise, we don't know what the events are really for. Eschatology mm -hmm. is really about answering the why questions. Why did God create? Why did he become incarnate, incarnated, and so on? Do you have any more verses, any more passages that talk about the ultimate yeah. end of things? I have some to share. If Colossians, uh, how do we pronounce that in English? The letter to the Colossians? Colossians. Colossians, yeah. Uh, 116, that yeah, all Colossians. things have been created through Christ and for Christ. Again, we get this telos, this purpose, this uh, intentionality that God is doing something that is directed toward a certain end, that all things uh, will belong to or become one in Christ. And in Romans 11.36, Paul uh, writes that for from Christ, or from, from him and through him, and for him are all things. So before the creation right, and in Romans and in Romans and in Romans eleven thirty two, just before that, Paul says, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience that so that he may be merciful mm. to all. Mm. And then there's a doxology which follows that, which exactly. seems to be kind of the summation of the entire argument of Romans. Yeah, it's the uh, salvation of all of Israel and and the peoples, right? And then we have to is it 11? Well, yeah. yeah, you know, he says that all of Israel says that all of Israel will be saved, but then he continues on, and he kind of the culmination of the argument is that mm -hmm. for God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that He may be may be merciful to all. The way Douglas mm -hmm. Campbell put it in my interview with him is, he said that there is an explicit universalism when it comes to Israel, yeah. and then an implicit universalism when it comes to all of humanity. Mm. Yeah, and when Paul reaches these either implicit or explicit universalist passages, it's because of his Adam uh, Christ parallelism uh, he uses in right, those Romans passages. Romans 5 especially. 
Yeah, in First Corinthians also, for us in Adam all die, so in Christ all would be made alive. Because Paul has realized that if the effect of Christ's salvific work is smaller than the effect of Adam's uh, sinfulness, then it makes Adam better and stronger than Christ, which doesn't make any sense. That the eternal right, and we're grace, and, and then it also makes and it makes sin more more profound in its effect yeah. than that of grace. Yeah, and it that would portray God as a pretty uh, <laughs> a, a failure, right? A God who has met his uh, equal or, or perhaps even his superior. That sin is more powerful than God. That God cannot uh, rectify the things that has uh, gone wrong. But if we return also, to in, along those. Hmm? Well, along those lines, First uh, John three eight, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Yeah. So if the, I mean that that's another thing I thought one time is if the purpose of the devil is to frustrate and to break the union between God and humanity, well, the Son of God then destroys the works of the devil. And if 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 the devil, if you want to put it this way, is finally able to separate any one of us from God eternally, then that is a victory where mm. the devil has beaten the Son of God, at least in that instance. Mm, mm, exactly. And that's unthinkable to Paul. So that that pushes him toward universalism, which he probably didn't embrace uh, explicitly and not all the time. But there are these passages, I think, are really interesting. But if we get back to uh, biblical passages that mention the God's ultimate plan. We also have Peter's speech in Acts 3.21, right. which reads, Heaven must receive Christ until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the, his holy prophets. So the ultimate telos for God is the restoration of all things, that all things might be, will become what God eternally has intended them to be. And I think that uh, what is important, in, for instance, in Ephesians and Romans 11.36 and so on, is to recognize that Christ is the plan of God even before the creation of the world. That before God decides to create a world and before the fall of humanity, Christ is already uh, a part of God's ultimate purpose, that uh, he creates the world and humanity in order to unite us all together with each other and with God through in and through Christ. Um, that is well, that sounds like a pretty good plan to me. That's a good plan, right? And if <laughs> the author of that plan is an omnipotent being, then it will occur, right? <laughs> Nothing can ob obscure this plan or obstruct it. Uh, there can be some bumps under the way or uh, difficulties, but God will uh, get uh, make sure that things reach that uh, the desired end. And I think that we should have confidence in uh, <laughs> have faith in God that He is not an incompetent creator and but 
the point here that Origen is also making is that this idea about God's ultimate purpose really makes eschatology and protology, the teachings about the beginning and the teachings about the end, to one and the same science. Mm-hmm. It's, we're investigating. I just got chill bumps when you said that, mm. that when I know that when that happened for me, that when I realized that protology and eschatology are actually the same thing, mm. that whenever I made that connection, it's like a little shot of spiritual energy just mm. ran through me. And yeah. it was like, oh my gosh, that makes, that makes total sense. There's that, that means there is now no longer any incoherence in my mm. theology. I still have some mystery, especially when it comes to why would God allow the creation to fall into the depths of evil and mm. tremendous suffering. But mm. I can at least imagine a possible resolution to where um, God has something in plan for all of us that is so wonderful mm. and will be so amazing that it will even make that the greatest evils make sense and that mm. God even descended into the midst of the great evil to win the victory. So. Mm. It's, it's, uh, you know, if I was writing a story, if I was an author, I don't know if I would write a story with that much evil in it, which meant that I would have to commit to coming into the story myself to suffer and die. Mm. Um, but apparently this is the way that God wants to tell this story and wants to write this story out. And to me, that's where the mystery comes in. God mm. has God's reasons for mm. bringing us through all of this evil, even if there is going to be a wonderful final apocatastasis. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the the problem of evil is a huge, huge topic, <laughs> and uh, that remains a mystery. Not to be minimized. Not to be minimized, and and I don't think that uh, eschatology can resolve the problems. That the belief that uh, all will be well in the end is not really a comfort for the p- person who is. In a in the midst of a huge crisis, but um, right. at least it's better than the alternatives, right? A world where you right. suffer then now, no and then maybe you will be tormented forever. It at the end, there's no resolution. There's no redemption. So I think that's sometimes and it in introduces, the, and then it introduces, uh, it introduces, I think, uh, darkness into the picture of God. Because if God is a being yeah. in whom there is lo- light and no darkness at all. If there is some final unresolved darkness in the creation, then that rebounds back to the character mm. of God. And then we find out that God is, in fact, not a being mm. of light in whom there is no darkness at all. Exactly. Then there's a kind of uh, dualism within the being of God. There's some, he's not perfect, perfectly good. There's some remains of right. non being or evil. Um, but I think that uh, there's also another passage I, I want to mention. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is telling his disciples that now he's, he'll be gone, but he will stay with them until the end of the world, or the end of the ages. It might be better translated that way. I think it's interesting that the Greek word used in that text is syntelias, which doesn't mean an end in the sense of a termination or 
destruction or something that the you know in in popular parlance when we talk about the end of the world we're talking about a kind of apocalyptic disaster or something like that but what jesus is uh, saying to his disciples and to us is that he's going to be with us until the completion of fulfillment of the world syntelias means something that say that greek word again syntelias it's a uh, combined of syn which means uh, with or together and telias telos the end syntelias means uh, yeah telos yeah. yeah it means the fulfillment or completion the of ultimate the purposes the, yeah exactly yeah. exactly the ultimate purpose until it is finished not in the sense that uh, now nothing new can happen uh, rather the end should be conceived of perhaps uh, like a birth <laughs> you know if if you're having a child the birth of the child is of course a kind of termination of the pregnancy but it's but it's also a new beginning it's the beginning of life right mm-hmm. beginning of a new life i think yeah and gregory of nyssa had the idea that there would that there would be an epictasis a continually mm-hmm. unfolding yeah. newness that yeah. would result from the infinite infinite unfolding of god so if god is is infinite then we can potentially grow infinitely into ever more of an awareness of mm. abs- the absolute goodness and wonder of who god is yeah and i really like that part of, of gregory's eschatology because it kind of underscores the life aspect of eternal life that it is a kind of living because the only thing uh, the difference between the living and the dead are that for the dead there are no, no nothing new right nothing new can occur but this yeah. uh, aspect that and it also solves some of the problems about our attempts to understand how an eternal life can be a blessing because when we if we understand eternal life as as just infinite time or something like that static static in a sense static yeah. a, a kind of static uh, condition then everything becomes hell <laughs> at some point we cannot mm-hmm. endure the, uh, the same staying in the same place too long at a time but epictesis means a, a kind of eternal Uh, becoming uh, more deeply united with God, stretching out into the infinite. And I think there's a lot of things to be said for that. But um, I think we also, if we want to speculate a bit about God's ultimate purpose for humanity, then we have to take into account that God in the new testament is described as love that love has to be uh, reckoned with as as part of god's ultimate purpose and i think that also douglas, uh, douglas campbell writes about this in pauline dogmatics that just as god in his triune being is consists of a kind of loving relationality we as humans are also created to participate in that loving relationality that god is in his own being 
That is, in a sense, we are created by love for love. So the end must consist in God slash love being all in all. That that we are uh, capable of fully uh, full participation in the being that God is. Um, mm -hmm. So to be saved in my understanding of it is to be made perfect in love the uh, being perfected in and by love i think that's god's ultimate purpose and we can realize that and and actualize it a bit already in this life i think and experience it but we also know that uh, there are many other things occurring in our lives and uh, we are not uh, perfect as our heavenly father is perfect so that is yet to come. But God's ultimate purpose for humanity is that we take part in the triune life of love and become one. That's how I read the passages I mentioned before from Ephesians, for instance, and 1 Corinthians mm -hmm. and so on. And that is the apocatastasis pantone. That is the restoration or fulfillment or completion of the work God begun when he started to create. Well, now that we have, now that we have sort of talked about how it is that uh, we might come to a conclusion that God's ultimate purposes in creation are to finally be all in all, then tell me how that has worked out as you have tried to approach other theological topics with that as a starting point. Mm. Yeah, as as you might remember, I've, I've told you once, I think I'm currently and have for some time been working on a book about universal salvation. It It's written in Danish, so you won't be able to read it. But uh, my well, approach... Maybe we can get an English, maybe we can get an yeah. English translation. Yeah, now I, I have to finish it first. <laughs> okay. I'm still in the process. But but yeah, I thought about it too. But um, my approach in that book is to see how, how uh, if we understand uh, all of the Christian doctrines in, the, in an eschatological light, what happens if we believe, for instance, that all would be saved? How, how does that affect... Uh, the, our understanding of Christ, of creation, of God, and so on, and what happens uh, with the Christian belief system if we uh, assume that the end consists in the salvation only of some people. If there's an universal salvation, uh, it's for me eschatology is a bit uh, plays the same role in theology as the keynote the key in a musical piece uh, the function fun has a similar function you know in a, a music piece uh, a music piece is written in a certain uh, keynote for instance uh, Bach uh, wrote his air on G string it's in the G note which means that all the other notes in the song in the p musical piece all the modulations, all the harmonies, etc., has to respect the keynote. 
and you as a composer you have to adjust every single note uh, in in relation to the keynote and if you change the keynote from let's say g to a minor for instance all the notes have to be adjusted so that i respect this keynote and i take the different eschatological visions that uh, the conflicting eschatological visions in christian in the christian tradition as playing a role similar to to a keynote so if you believe in universal salvation all the other notes have to be adjusted to that uh, uh, basic belief and if you believe in only mm -hmm. a limited salvation you have to change all the notes and you have to place them differently does that make sense to use that as an analogy well yes i mean i have a i have a background in music and so i understand that um that there is a key that has mm -hmm. to be respected also what's interesting too is if you understand music sometimes great composers will have will start out in a certain key mm. and then they'll introduce purposefully uh, dissonance yeah and then but at the end it will finally there will finally be a resolution in that same key yeah. so that and doesn't mean that it, there can't ever be any dissonance that you can't ever that there can't ever be something that frustrates the key but mm. finally there needs to be a resolution yeah and that's in music has a, a tremendous effect when you dissolve the dissonances and return to the to the key again right uh, i don't know what uh, right. a redemptive feeling to it right right yeah yeah, yeah. uh so but my main point is that uh the eschatological vision we embrace uh, functions like a hermeneutical key, right? Mm -hmm. Like a hermeneutical key. Um, and just to take a simple, uh, straightforward example, if if we believe that only some people will be saved, then it does, of course, affects the doctrine of God. We've already talked a bit about it. Uh, I think there are only two alternatives, and none of them are very uh, uh, not to be appreciated too much. But uh, if not all people are being saved, then it isn't God's ultimate tailors that all should be saved. God doesn't want all to be saved. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that God indeed wanted all to be saved, but he wasn't able to uh, fulfill his own, uh, his own plan couldn't be effected, effectuated. And in the first case, God is then appears to be pretty evil or limited in his goodness. And in the second case, God seems to be limited in his salvific power that is incompetent or weak. And I think that's just uh, uh, Thomas Talbot uses this and as an example in, in his work, and I think that illustrates perfectly how the how the, our vision or understanding of the last things, the final things, determine or uh, have ramifications for the other doctrines of the Christian faith. But what we perhaps could talk a bit about is how 
uh, what eschatology has uh, of influence or consequences for our understanding of anthropology, of what it is to be a human being. Because I think the same, uh, as I mentioned here about the picture of God, uh, goes when we talk about the, uh, the the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of man, that uh, it tells us something about being human if not everyone ends up being saved. And it tells us something mm-hmm. different about being human if we assume or believe that all in the end will be saved. Uh, so it also has, I think, consequences for ethics. How do we approach each other? How do we treat each other? How do we define other people and understand them and approach them? I think eschatology has consequences. I know that one of the ways. I know, yeah. I know that one of the ways this affected me was when I came to this conclusion. I began to see that every single person in the world is my eternal brother and sister with whom I am destined to be reconciled. And so uh, I don't want to do anything to them now or, or, or look at them or think about them in any way except through that lens. So mm-hmm. if there's something about them that is, seems wrong or bad, what I can say is, oh, well, they're my brother or sister and they're currently suffering. They're sick in some way. Mm-hmm. But but that doesn't mean that that's who they are eternally. Mm. And so in just the way that they are not eternally who they will be yet, I am not eternally who I will be yet, but I can mm. trust that in that eternity, we will be reconciled to each other. And if, if that's my starting point with another person, what mm. I've discovered is that I communicate that to them uh, non-verbally in all kinds of ways um, before we even talk about theology or or mm. anything. They can just tell when they're around me that I regard them as a person of infinite worth and my eternal brother and sister without mm. me even having it, to say anything to them. They can tell that that I'm seeing them and, and believing that about them. And that mm. just affects everything without even having to say anything. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's very difficult to hang on to an in-group, out-group mentality if you be- if you believe that ultimately we will all be together, right? Because mm-hmm. then your eschatological vision is not dualist anymore, and and that will affect the way you approach people in this world also. And I think a perfect example is uh, is it First Timothy where uh, Paul, or the author, instructs his readers to pray for every person, everybody. The, 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 the way a Christian should pray is, uh, is to pray for everybody, a universal prayer. Mm-hmm. And the reasons uh, for, for that ethical practice, that way of uh, living, is eschatological. And as Paul uh, claims uh, or says, uh, we should pray for everybody because God wants all to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, etc. So because of a universal, because of God's universal salvific will, 
we should have the same attitude towards every person who lives. So I think that that's an example of how, uh, and, and, and actually the way Paul is arguing here is from eschatology to ethics, right? Because God wants all to be saved, therefore you should pray for every person. But what if Paul has said, because God wants only to save some people, what would the instruction then sound like to the disciples, to the readers of the text? Therefore, you should pray for how many people? Who, those who look like yourself, uh, the people who share your belief system, uh, the people closest to you, or something like that. Um, but I think that we might, perhaps we should go a bit into theology of religions, because I think that's a topic where uh, universal salvation on the one side and a belief in only a limited salvation on the other side has shows us some, <laughs> uh, reveals themselves to uh, impose us with very different attitudes towards the non-Christian other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a, always been a problem in most traditional Christian theology that uh, the criteria for being saved has been basically to be a Christian, to have a belief in Christ or to be baptized or to belong to the church or something like that. So what about the non-Christian? If only the Christians are saved, uh, how should we as Christians regard and act towards the non-Christian? How do we understand the other human beings who are, for some reasons or others are not Christians themselves? Uh, I think the traditional doctrine of a limited salvation and an eternal damnation runs into several ethical problems here. For instance, uh, what about all the people who are not Christians because they had never heard of Christ? Because they have lived before the incarnation or before they, uh, or because they uh, grow up in a, are born into a culture that is not Christian, etc. These are some of the problems that are difficult to deal with if we believe that ultimately only people who confess their beliefs in Christ will be saved. Mm -hmm. Another and, issue that I've run into is that people who um, sometimes, at least in my context, people reject Christianity because they assume that being a Christian means having to believe in a God who does not want to save all mm. and who has a hell of eternal conscious torment for perhaps the majority of humanity. So, they reject that picture of God and in so doing believe that they have rejected Christianity altogether because it's the only form of Christianity that they mm. know about. Mm. And, um, you know, so what, you know, what about that? There, there are people who are, you know, who grow up in other religions and we can understand how difficult that would be to change. Like take a context like Southeast Asia where, you mm. know, 99% of people are Islamic or, or Hindu and, uh, something like that, or, or mm. some religion, uh, some Eastern, more Eastern religion, and where the whole cultural religious context 
that the Christianity that they've heard about mm. maybe wouldn't make sense at all, wouldn't compute in any way for them. Exactly. And so that would be an extraordinary hurdle for mm. those people to try to get across. And I have talked with people who became Christian universalists after having going to the mission field and realizing that the hurdle that these people would have to cross in order to come to Christ was so huge for them culturally mm. that they could not imagine that God would send them to hell forever for not being able to cross that you know enormous mm. cultural mm. Uh, mm. and religious hurdle in their context. And so they ended up having nearly like nervous breakdowns over mm. this. But when they were able to come to a Christian universalist understanding, it still made them want to share Christ, but not in the way that they felt like they had to share Christ before. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's very odd to contemplate the thought or idea that God has made salvation uh, is made conditional upon arbitrary things such as uh, inheritance or cultural background or ge geography <laughs> right that you happen to be born in mm -hmm. bangladesh uh, excludes you from fellowship with god uh, eternal fellowship with god because you didn't accept christ as your savior it doesn't really make any sense to me and i think the main problem here is that the traditional doctrine of eternal damnation uh has somehow placed the criterion, at least in some versions, has made uh, the def definition of what it means to be Christian dependent upon our own decisions. That to be a Christian is an identity I can get if I choose to, if I choose to believe, or if I choose to get baptized, then I will become a follower of Christ and belong to him. But I think that from the perspective of universal salvation, you have to say that the only criterion we we can uh, for determining whether a person is a, really a Christian or not is doesn't lie within us, but within God. Right? It's It's God who, it's not what I do to myself or what happens in my life or the circumstances under which I live that determines who I really am. I have my identity in what God decides for me. And if God has chosen that every person are created for and to Christ, then everybody belongs to Christ, whether we know it or not, whether we accept that fact <laughs> or not. So mm -hmm. I think we should think about being a Christian is having an identity not in myself but in Christ that's a kind of eccentric identity uh, a Christian is a person who belongs to Christ and I don't think any person doesn't belong to Christ uh, so we might talk about I think it's a Catholic theologian who, who talked about uh, anonymous Christians or unconscious Christians. We, we are all Christians in the sense that we are all loved by God and that we all belong to Christ. And that relationship we cannot jeopardize by anything we do. Uh, but we're not Christians 
simply because I have a belief in Christ. That's not the Christian identity. I think we have to define Christianity in terms of God's doing, what God is doing for us. Which means, and if we have that perspective, uh, then we have to meet people of different uh, religious beliefs and atheists and so on. Exactly as you described it beforehand, as mm-hmm. people we are going to spend eternity with as our brethren and sisters, as one big family, we all be- we are all members of the body of Christ, whether we know it or not. Um, yeah, that was certainly the that was certainly the beauty of Gregory of Nyssa's vision. Mm. Uh, what's interesting to me is that this theology is not new; that it can no, be retrieved Gregory, from mm. the early centuries of the church. If you read Gregory's uh, work about uh, on the. I think it appeared in a new translation recently about the creation of man. Uh, yes, the John Bear, creation of the, the image of God. Translation yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah, if you read that yeah. and his, uh, I, I did an interview with him on that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Here we see that the image of God for Gregory is not an individual capacity. The image is not my reason or something I can have for myself as an individual. The image of God is a communal category for Gregory in that the image of God is all of humanity uh, united with each other and with God at the end. So the image of God is an eschatological reality when all of humanity is... Or at the the telos. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like God is making... The image of God is like God making... Uh, painting an image, painting a picture. And he's using all of us as colors and motives and so on. And if one of us is, is lacking at the end, there will be a, a blank, <laughs> a, a spare part. Right. A white it's, like an enormous, mm. it's like an enormous jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. And imagine the most enormous jigsaw puzzle you possibly can with exactly. one piece missing. Yeah. <laughs> it would be very unsatisfying, right? Right. <laughs> that one piece is missing. So, so the image of God is really the totality of all individuals who have all uh, who has ever lived, the whole of humanity. And I think that's also uh, really inspiring. Uh, and uh, also, if we are going to do ethics, right, uh, to think about our fellow human beings as some somebody who's already in God's mind at least, part of this total great grand image. And part of me. Yeah, and part of me, yeah. yeah. No man is an island. I guess that's a cliche, but <laughs> at least... It, but if, if there's a limited salvation, then I think we have a concept that promotes individualism. Mm-hmm. And not a communal or relational understanding of a human person, but an individualistic understanding of the human person. And I think right because if I can, if that's if that's true, then I could. If if it's just if we're just individuals, then I can be saved alone, yeah. and your destiny has no ultimate bearing on mine. Yeah, I can be complete without you, without anybody in principle. I can flourish. I can. Be exactly what and who I am without anybody, right? 
So in principle, I could be saved as the only person and all the, the rest of you could go to hell and I will still be perfectly happy and it wouldn't uh, in any way disrupt my the, the eternal bliss or anything for me. That's an extreme kind of individualism. But also historically, it's interesting that when William of Ockham in the 13th, no, yeah, 13th or 14th century uh, argued against the idea that there were universals, you know, that his, he made a point that, uh, that humanity doesn't exist. What exists are individual human beings. So only individuals exist. That's a part of his nominalist uh, philosophy, right? Only individuals exist. And his reason for coming to that conclusion is that not all people will be saved. Because not every person will be saved, then humanity cannot be a reality. Because if humanity was a real thing, then it would be destroyed if someone was lacking. Mm -hmm. That brings him to the conclusion, therefore, we are, there are only individuals. They are not a common or universal category. Uh, humanity doesn't exist. So his argument for individualism is based directly on a belief in only a limited salvation. That brings him to the conclusion. But I also think on a more down-to-earth level that if you believe that some people are saved but others are not, it kind of forces you to think more about yourself. To, you know, uh, where do I stand in relation to God? What is my part? What is my fate? So, in a sense, I, I think uh, the more you think that not everybody will be saved, then you're forced to think more about yourself as an individual in isolation from others. And it even perhaps also promotes selfishness, not only individualism and understanding that a human person is not fundamentally related to others and can exist happily without other people, but also a kind of selfishness seems to be promoted by the belief that it's possible to go to hell. And I think it is the case because it um, it's very difficult to believe in a state of eternal conscious torment and has that as a part of your theology without turning the proclamation of the gospel into something also fearful, something promoting fear or fear-based. And when we as humans get afraid, we tend to become very self-absorbed and focus about our own survival. And I think if you hear, uh, if you present people for a uh, gospel message sounding some something like this if you believe in christ you can avoid going to hell then you are appealing mm -hmm. to a person's self-interest then i have a egotistic reason to become a christian because then i can avoid something which is not desirable for myself i think that's a problem inherent in the belief in only a limited salvation 
Whereas if you believe in a universal salvation, uh, I think you it's very difficult to find a selfish reason to become a Christian. I don't know if you could follow me at that. Because then salvation is not some special prize I get because of my because of specific beliefs or behaviors in this world then salvation is not something I can gain for myself. I've heard numerous times people tell me something, uh, ask me, if everybody is saved anyway, then why should I be a Christian? And why should I go to church or be baptized? And I think that's a very, very selfish answer uh, or question uh, that reveals that uh, this person is thinking what's in it for me how what do i get that the, my neighbor doesn't get if i believe in christ and the person next door does not believe right in i think that the, uh, the certain, one of the uh, things christ. yeah that mm. yeah one of the things that um i think i got used to saying to people was the good news is that the kingdom of god is here right now we can begin living in god's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven Jesus lays out the model of how to do this in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we follow him, he promises us that we will have fullness of life and that there will be sort of a light that shines in us, which will bring hope and healing mm. and reconciliation to the world. And that that's our commission as disciples to go and to be that light and to be that shining example and to live that kind of life in the world right now. And that that is fullness of life. And mm. if we decide we don't want to do that, well, we can. But what we do is we walk then towards the darkness and towards destruction. And, and that path may not ultimately lead to eternal separation from God, but it can lead to tremendous misery for ourselves and for mm. others in this world and in the age to come, however much misery we need to endure until we try and finally realize that we're headed in the wrong direction. So mm. I, for one, want to avoid all of that. I want to mm. live in the kingdom of God right now. I want to experience mm. fullness of life right now. Um, and so the idea that, that God will ultimately restore everything is not a discouragement mm. for me in any way of any of that. It's actually encouraging me mm. to do that so that not only can I be of benefit to myself, but I can be a benefit to others and say, you know, there's a better way. We don't mm. have to live. We can live a, 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 a in, in the light and in goodness and love and forgiveness and mercy and hope and reconciliation and all those things mm. right now. We don't have to wait. We don't have to die uh, physically in order to get to that place. We can enter the, we can repent and we can enter the kingdom of God right now and have mm. all of that in this moment. That, to mm. me, that's an exciting invitation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we don't have to become jealous or envy uh, anybody. Uh, if we live with Christ in this life, I don't have to be jealous that perhaps somebody I know who doesn't believe in Christ will end up the same place as me. I can rejoice in that vision instead of be feeling envy like the older son in the parable of the prodigal mm -hmm. son. <laughs> right, he becomes. Well, I can uh, see uh, it just from our, yeah, just from our conversation, just from our conversation so far. I think it's apparent how thinking this way recasts 
how we think about things and how we look at things theologically, ethically. It has such an enormous impact and influence. And so you've been in actual classroom settings with people engaged in ministry talking about these issues and thinking and thinking through that. How has this affected how some of the ministers that have been in classes where you've been discussing these things, how has this how has this gone over with them? Is it has it been interesting for them or disturbing or what has the response been? Yeah, I think this for some some it has been disturbing in the sense that they have to uh on a rather fundamental level rethink what do they have learned uh, relearn or unlearn and relearn <laughs> doesn't make sense to say that like that mm-hmm. they've been used to thinking that uh, i might uh, make a bit of a caricature here but that uh, god created the world and that was his main purpose that he wanted to create a place which was where uh, human beings could live or something like that but then something went wrong right his mm-hmm. that was god's plan a but it failed somehow because of the fall of adam and eve and then god has to uh, then then begins the story right then history begins and it's a history of sin and death and rebellion against god and then god has to find a solution to this new problem he didn't envisioned from the beginning so he sends his only son etc they're, they're used to think in that chronological order as a s- kind of story of some unforeseen events and and so on and then in at the end and then they when they come to eschatology they're used to treat it as a kind of appendix like okay and then there's some speculative things about how it all will end so when i try mm-hmm. to say well i think we should start by Uh, contemplating what is God's purpose? Why, why did God create at all? What is he, what is His goal? His telos. What what does He aim at? When you start there, then a lot of things uh, fall into place. Is my experience uh, that that people can see that now things begin to make sense. That Christianity begins to present itself as a more coherent logically consistent more morally uh beautiful uh system of belief so my experience uh, but for some it's a very strange way of thinking because the main theological figures we are reading in denmark for instance and is not origin or gregory of nisa it's people from the western christian tradition who are used to do theology in another way Uh, mm-hmm. And where the belief in only a partial salvation is is part of it. Um, but I think uh, sometimes I refer to in when I'm teaching, I refer to Hebrews chapters eleven, verse one, which says that faith is confidence. In what we hope for, which is, which is a passage that seems to make hope the primary category. That what it is to be Christian is to have a certain hope for something. Well, and I think a hope in 
the fulfillment of God's plan and his ultimate purpose, that to be a Christian is living hopefully in this world. And faith is related to hope in the sense that, that faith is n nothing more or less than the confidence that, that we, ha we can trust <laughs> that this hope will not be in vain. That is, will actually transpire at some point because it's God who's behind it. So I think a passage like Hebrews is also a, a place in the New Testament that seems to suggest that uh, eschatology is to, is to, has to be our starting point when we do theology. That we have to start with the Christian hope. That's the way I used to translate eschatology, not as the doctrine of the final things, but as the doctrine of the Christian hope. That's why we have to start, what are we really hoping for? And how does all the ingredients in the Christian narrative fit that hope? Mm -hmm. And here, everything stands and falls with what we are hoping for. And if that's, that hope is not universal, <laughs> includes all persons, then, then I don't think it's a very cheerful hope. And there's nothing, not much to hope for, really. Well, I have learned uh, so much from you about Lutheranism and its inherent complexity. And I'm hoping that by your work that people who want to embrace the part of Lutheranism that results in a Christian universalist perspective, I hope that there is a growing place and an awareness that they can be a part of modern Lutheranism and that modern Lutheranism is um, a place for people who want to hold this vision and that they can say that in holding this vision that they can look to parts of the Lutheran confession as good reasons for this and that they can say that they're not doing anything anti-Lutheran mm -hmm. about this, that they are just affirming what they see to be the parts of the Lutheran tradition that are most consistent with the character of God has love, with the the nature of, of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God that we have there, and also in those passages in the New Testament and also in the rest of the Bible mm. that seem to say that, that God has a bigger purpose than just to make a creation, but to make a creation that ultimately, in which God is ultimately all in all. And the light and love that was in the beginning is fully present in the telos, and mm. it's not really an end, but sort of a new beginning that continues on in a in a, a sort of a beautiful forever where we're always continuing to find out uh, what is something else new and wonderful about being in uh, in a fully reconciled and restored creation. Mm. Yeah, as I used to say, uh, God is not creating a simply creating a world, he's creating a kingdom. That's God's God's not creating a world and something happens and then he has to fix it. God, when God begins, he's aiming at creating the kingdom of God. And first, and only when the kingdom of God is a realized uh, actual reality, then God is finished creating. Well, I, I feel in a bit like I'm in the presence of uh, Gregory of Nyssa. <laughs> <laughs> you have certainly taken many of his themes mm. and... Um, and taken them and, and recast them in a modern context and, and um, 
I really commend your work and looking forward to seeing how things will continue to progress uh, for you in Denmark. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.